American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life when the words all come down like blues on Tuesdays come down. Thank God that wasn't recording. Why? It was a cool intro. It was what I just awful. did. I just did put all my energy in that intro. Intro, and then we weren't recording. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines by History for Jerks. This is the last episode of season four. The last episode of the sixties. And I'm Amy, and that's Joe. Yes, that is my name. My name is Joe. My name is not Garrett Bajensen. Key. No. Okay. Pajamers. Right, the reason Bejazzle. I started listen. The reason I started introducing you, yeah, was to get rid of that awkward bit that wasn't working. Some people call me Gary Vajazzle, and you brought it back in. Yeah, it's for the last episode of the season. Everybody wants it. Nobody want it. Nobody does. People ask. Nobody's for it. asking for it. I will vajazzle your vajayjay because my name is All Gary. Right. What? So we're gonna end. Yes. 1969 tonight. Yes. And we ended last time halfway through November. Yes. So we're going to take this motherfucker home. Oh, take this motherfucker home. We ain't afraid to say bad words. No. Yeah, we left off in November. So we, you know, normally we end a month, but we decided, fuck fuck it. it. There's no more rules. Nobody cares about anything anymore. That's right. We do what we want. Sucks. Uh, so we left off when the Brady Bunch, uh, the kids were, were torn over whom to believe when Cindy's favorite doll, Kitty Carryall, disappears and she says that Bobby took it. Mm-hmm. That was November 7th, as everyone knows. Nobody knows. So we're going to pick right back up November 8th, okay? We're going to just get through this. We're going to get on it, get up, get down, get all around it. We're going to get in it. Sounds good. Okay. Saturday, November eighth was nineteen of nineteen sixty nine was a new number one song on the Billboard charts by the Fifth Dimension, Wedding Bell Blues. Oh, I don't know that one. You don't know how that goes? I mean, if I heard it, I'd probably know. Well, but... we can't it's against copyright laws for us to play any of it, so like anybody's gonna give a shit. They might. They might sue us. Uh, but it goes a little something, maybe if I just sing it. Oh my god, no. Uh, Please it goes don't. Like, a little bit like this. Uh, it was the li- lyrics are written from the perspective of a woman whose boyfriend has not yet proposed to her. Mm-hmm. She wonders, "Am I ever going to see my wedding day?" It carries dual themes of adoring love and frustrating lament. Okay. It became a popular phrase in American culture later. What am I going to get? Wedding the f- bell blues. Oh, wedding, wedding bell, bell blues. blues. Yeah, women always want. Oh yes, I have heard it. That part I just heard. Yeah, I this, recognized it. So this isn't us playing the song. You can just hear it in the background. We're at a bar that's playing it. Yeah, Woody, really. Oh, they're playing a Woody Allen special. Uh, you know, there's something I've been thinking about. What wedding, weddings, and women in in our society lately? Why? And just how sad it is that. Um. I don't know. I was watching some. Was it commercial? It was a TikTok or somewhere I saw this woman who was being surprised by her fiance, like mm-hmm. was going to ask to marry her, and 
So it's somebody else was videotaping her, watching her surprise. Like it was this thing where they were going to a place, and she was like, "Oh, oh my god, is this really? Oh my god!" And she's so excited, and she's running, mm-hmm. you know, and she's in tears, and just like it's the like mm-hmm. the moment of her life has led up to this. Mm-hmm. And that is what bothers me about it is that we've set up women to believe that that's the most important thing. Some guy deciding to mm-hmm. stay with you forever, it should be the most exciting moment of your life. Oh, like, yeah. Like, like, why is that, like... I know. You know, like, for the guy, it's not supposed no. to be that. For the guy, it's also up to be like, oh, you screwed up. You know, what are you doing, you idiot? Yep, you know? exactly. And how sad that that's... That women still, to this day, play into that and do all that i mean you did that Mm-hmm. yeah sorry i mean i never looked at it like it was gonna be the most amazing thing in my life yeah like i, mean, I knew that if we had children that would probably top it <laughs> but you got emotional and we're all excited but i mean it, i guess for me it was more of like hey what's well, a ceremony you know, hey i a, love you like i love you for like i don't yeah to say in front of everybody that you're vowing to love somebody forever is a yeah, big deal that, that's it like you're my true love but there's also that thing about society like people look at you as like, oh she can never find a man or she's never found like for women it seems like it's more oh they're worth like, it's wrapped yeah, up in their self-worth wrong with you if yeah you don't find a man absolutely i you disagree with that well i'm sad about it i'm sad yeah. that that's set no, up to be sad like that. state of affairs have you seen the world today <laughs> yeah. it's a lot of shit going wrong i guess that's not the worst thing about mm, the world not even close <laughs> not even the top 200 but it's just like i never thought of it like that mm-hmm. until i you know i guess until i became a feminist right now i'm a feminist you can be a feminist men can be feminists I am a feminist, I yeah. think. No, no, I mean, I mean, I just recently realized, like, I'm, I'm a feminist. Yeah, sure. I'm yeah. not only a feminist; I'm otherists too. Right, but I am. Like, I want my daughter, and not just because you're I, a and feminist. That's you're a communist. You're a what I'm, else? I'm effeminate. I'm an effeminate no. heterosexual. No, Definitely but I th- also like. You know, it sounds cliche, but I don't want my daughter to think she can't. She has to, you know be married to a guy or has to be that's the happiest day of her life and i want her to know she can be whatever but also i don't just think that because i have a daughter like mm-hmm. like that drives me nuts when people are like i have a daughter so i'm not gonna be misogynist right. anymore it's like you should not be misogynist right. if you didn't have a daughter or a mom or sister because you're not an asshole yeah it's like but people say that all well the that's time. like when they say oh you have a black friend yeah right i don't know i yeah. stopped being racist because i know larry yep I don't know. what. Okay, we'll get back to the Wedding Bell Blues. The Fifth Dimension, I don't know, that song sucks, and anybody who likes it is a jerk. All right, what's next? Uh, November 9th was a Sunday of 1969. A group of American Indians, led by Richard Oakes, mm-hmm. seized Alcatraz oh, Island. Oh, yes, when the Indians took over Alcatraz. For 19 months, yeah, inspiring yep. a wave of renewed Indian pride and government reform. I never heard of this. Oaks was a mo- It's a big, it's a fascinating story. Oh, it really is. Yeah, we should do a whole thing on this. Mm-hmm. But Oaks, a Mohawk Indian and a student at San Francisco State College, organized a gathering at, uh, at San Francisco and began reading a proclamation reclaiming the former site of the federal prison by right of discovery and made an offer to compensate the U.S. government with $24 in glass beads and red cloth <laughs> based on a legend that Dutch West India Company had paid 60 Dutch guilders uh, to a group of Delaware Indians for their rights to Manhattan Island. 
Uh, after telling reporters that the offer followed a precedent set by white man's purchase of a similar island about 300 years ago. Mm-hmm. Oaks then accepted an offer by Canadian yacht owner Ronald Craig to sail over to Alcatraz at no charge, and 50 boarded the Monte Cristo. Oaks and Chippewa businessman Adam F- Adam Fortunate Eagle, at the time his name was Adam Nordwall, swam to the island along with two other men. The group stayed for 15 minute, minutes and then were escorted back in a small boat. But Oaks and 13 others returned that evening and spent the night before being returned to the mainland on a U.S. Coast Guard cutter. I mean, they swam? Yeah. You know those waters are like shark infested well, and stuff and fr- frigid? Well, if you're at one with nature, honey, after the symbolic taking of the island, a much longer siege would begin 11 days later on November 20th and last until June 11th, 1971. Yep. Yeah, they should take back all of their land, mm-hmm. and we should have to pay them everything. Um, yeah. I agree. Yep, and so it's a there's a whole lot more to that, but this would take the whole episode. But that's an interesting thing. Like mm-hmm. maybe, maybe future seasons we'll just go back to things that were interesting that we didn't get to and do, a, do a deep dive, deep dive on we'll them. Do a yeah, special episodes or something. Because um, there's a lot of things like this that was like, man, I'd love to I'd like to learn more about that. Yeah. Uh, during the occupation, Nixon rescinded the Indian termination policy designed by earlier administrations to end federal rec- recognition of tribes and their special relationship with the U.S. government, and he established a new policy of self-determination in part as a result of the publicity and awareness created by the occupation. So it made changes. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it had an effect. Yeah. And then on Monday, November 10th, 1969, Sesame Street aired its first episode on the National Education Television Network. Aww. The NET, the predecessor to the public broadcasting system. Uh, it started after school at various times, as one critic noted in informing parents that the new show for preschool children presented the alphabet and numerals in the form of commercials. The first edition of Sesame Street comes to you today through the courtesy of the numbers two and three and the letters E, S, they, and They w. are all supposed to be commercials. I never thought of it like that. I didn't either, but... But it is. It is, yeah. Yeah. That's a way to make kids pay attention. Mm-hmm. The AP's TV critic, Cynthia Lowry... Pra- it's a genius idea. She praised the show as... A delight that is bound to have many post-school fans as well, and noted that new characters introduced were a huge creature called Big Bird and another called Kermit the Frog. I didn't realize that Kermit the Frog started on Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. I thought he was on. Well, remember he was the, the reporter. Yeah, I knew that, but I thought he was on the Muppets first. Oh no! I thought the Muppets were before. No, Sesame, Sesame Street. Street was first. Well, obviously. Duh. Duh! I'm an idiot. Um. Uh, Anyway, so that's uh, that same day, the eight-team International Boxing League, a venture of Chicago sportscaster Jack Drees, made its debut at 8 o'clock in the evening before 200 people at the Memorial Auditorium in Louisville, Kentucky. The Kentucky Pacers defeated the Milwaukee Bombers 50-20 to 20 in the inaugural meet. Mm. I didn't know there was boxing leagues. Oh, okay. And I they had know. names and mascots and everything. So it would be like a team of boxers? Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. An IBL card consisted of seven bouts of three rounds apiece and weight classes ranging from bantamweight to heavyweight. Okay. A bantamweight boxer only weighed three pounds. Yeah. It's like a newborn uh, baby. Uh, a newborn baby's fighting. Uh, for each bout, a team would be credited with one point for each round that was a draw, two points for a winning round, four points for winning the bout. Anyway, I didn't know that happened. There's much more about this, but we'll just I'm glad we're on. not mov- moving on with that. Uh 
Well, that same day, the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency tested the first supersonic drone aircraft, the D-21 Tagboard, on a secret reconnaissance mission over China. Mm. You believe in the 60s? Yeah, that's crazy. A drone? Yeah. So maybe they did really fly to the moon if they had a drone. Well, maybe, and maybe they, um, UFOs aren't real. Maybe not. Maybe it's all just drones. Maybe, or maybe it's other military, but they don't look like drones is the thing. What? No. Look, UFOs, like what people describe as UFOs don't look like drones. Yeah. They look, they're either saucer or cigar shaped. A lot of people say they're cigar shaped. Yeah. And they're all one color. And there's no like decipherable windows or anything, but then there's all these colored lights on the bottom. Well, they said that, you know, that asteroid that came by, they think it might be an alien ship. What asteroid? Umaluma. It was called Umama, Umamaluma or something. What? La- I think it was last year. It was like this big, long, cigar-shaped thing with no windows or anything. They thought it was an asteroid, but they said it could be alien technology. Did you hear about that? No. Um, um, I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, I'm drinking an IPA from out of St. Louis <laughs> called Drawing Sight. Okay. It's pretty good. That's a good segue, babe. Anyway, um, I also, I really want to have a cigar right now. Why? I don't know, because you, you said cigar shape. I just want to smoke a cigar. Ew. I really want to smoke a cigarette. Yeah. I really started missing cigarettes during this pandemic. Yeah. I think it's because like the only thing that's kind of like a pandemic is like when you have a blizzard. Mm-hmm. And when I was in college, anytime we had a blizzard, or everybody snowing, was smoking. We just smoked a bunch of cigarettes. Yeah, so let's just pack up a bunch of smokes and just smoke away. Yep. Back in the days when you, nothing was going to kill you. Yeah. If I ever find out I'm dying, like I'm not going to live much longer, I'm going to smoke a bunch of cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be pleasant to be around. <laughs> and I'll never stop smoking them. <laughs> like I won't put them down. It'll be like people come visit. Oh, hey, your grandson's You're here to see you. You just chain smoke. I'm like, well. Okay, well, you want to put the cigarette out? No. No, I'm smoking this the whole time. The, it's all a little, my waking hours will be smoking. It's a little irrational. Man, it's, smoking was great. I God, I loved it. Miss Except it. Except it stinks. Yeah, that's true. It really stinks. It does stink terribly. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, on Tuesday, November 11th, 1969, one day after pleading not guilty in Miami to charges of indecent exposure and public intoxication during a March 1st concert, rock singer... Jim Morrison. Yes, Jim Morrison was arrested again upon his arrival in Phoenix, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Morrison and his friend Tom Baker were charged with a federal offense of interfering with an airline flight arising out of their disorderly conduct during a Continental Airlines flight from L.A. A federal judge would later dismiss the charges against Morrison on April 20th, 1970. That's according to Wikipedia. Yeah, he got his dick out on stage. Yeah. Yep. Who hasn't? Well. Every time I. Most, you know, most politicians. Every time I host a charity event. I you do, do it, you yeah. know. November 12th, 1969 was a Wednesday. The cartoon character Fat Albert was introduced as part of an NBC television special. The character based on comedian Bill Cosby's memories of his childhood friend Albert Robinson and characters based on Cosby and Albert's friends would later become part of a regular cartoon series on CBS from 1972 to 85. God, it's so, there's so many conflicting emotions I have right now I know, about I'm, all of it. It's so sad. That I Not can't... only the Bill Cosby part, but the... How, how was it problematic like fat albert yeah i don't know was it i don't remember like did it play on mean, stereotypes like, of, of a fat guy or of black or people black people well they were his friends yeah I mean, they were his and then they were friends. the protagonists so 
That's what I'm saying. I just, I, I don't know. I can't remember. I recently saw a preview or commercial or something for the Fat Albert movie that uh, Kenan Thompson did. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, ah, that was probably terrible. That's stupid. Yeah. I want to see that. But I've seen, I watched the trailer or something, and I was like, I kind of got excited. I was like, man, I always wanted that to be a thing in real life. I always want to see Dumb Donald like, with that mm-hmm. mask over his face to see what that would look like in real life. And it happened. Mm-hmm. And it looks like they did a good job. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure it was terrible. But yeah, I'm sure. I think I'm going to watch it. But oh I don't want to support. Does it give Bill Cosby money? Yeah, I don't know. If I watch it on like YouTube TV, does that give him anything? Probably. Because I don't want to support his raping. Royalties. But he's in something. jail now, right? Isn't that okay? Like he's in I jail? I think he's in jail. Like if he's dead, can I watch it? Can I wait till he's... I don't know. It's a very confusing situation. What about Bach? Sebastian Bach did a bunch of stuff. He did? He? Or Beethoven? One mm, of them did a bunch of bad things. You're just making shit up now. I am. November 13, 1969 was a Thursday. U.S. Vice President Spiro Agnew took the unprecedented step of accusing the three American television networks whose affiliate stations broadcast rights were licensed by the U.S. government of letting their newscasters and commentators abuse a concentration of power over American public opinion, unknown in history. What are you talking about? And hinting that perhaps it is time that the networks were made more responsive to the views of the nation and more responsible to the people they serve and urge Americans to call and write their local TV stations. So what did they want? Agnew, who previously delivered criticism against opponents of Nixon's policies, delivered the criticism after a disappointing response from the network's news to President Nixon's Vietnamization speech. So Spiro Agnew was like, you're not supporting the president enough, you know, kind of thing. He, basically, they, he wished they were like Fox News. Oh, okay. This is how I took that. That would have been a quicker way to say it. Yeah, well, I was just reading what Wikipedia wrote about it, I guess. And then on Saturday, November 15th, 1969, the first Wendy's Old Fashioned Hamburger Restaurant was opened as businessman Dave Thomas began Business at 257 East Broad Street in downtown Columbus, Ohio. Oh, I didn't know that's where it started. Wendy was his eight-year-old daughter, Melinda Wendy Thomas, who served also as the model for the smiling little girl on the restaurant's sign and logo. Despite having a higher price for his freshly cooked made-to-order square hamburgers, the restaurant was so popular that it began making a profit by the end of the year. I bet she was teased at school for that. You think so? Oh, yeah. I don't think so. Not in the 60s. Nobody teased anybody then. Sure they did. You think so? Oh, my God. The bullies and stuff? Well, that same day that Dave Thomas opened that Wendy's in D.C., more than 500,000 protesters staged the largest peace march on Washington in American history. Wow. For the second moratorium to end the war in Vietnam. The March Against Death. And then Sunday, November 16, 1969, singer Janis Joplin was arrested at the Curtis Hickson Convention Center in Tampa, Florida, and charged with obscenity for using profanity while addressing the police during a concert. Tampa police allowed her to finish her set of seven songs before arresting her backstage. She posted a $504 bond and was released. Yep. And then she died seven months later exactly. Wow. Isn't that weird? Yeah, that is weird. And then we're going to jump to Wednesday, November 19th. 1969, mm-hmm. Apollo 12 astronauts Pete Conrad and Alan Bean landed the lunar module Intrepid as the northern edge of the crater Mare Cognitum within the Oceanus Pasolarum, Ocean of Storms, area, becoming the third and fourth humans to reach the surface of the moon. Okay. 
Yeah, I never knew who. Yeah, else. went up there. Yeah, so I put that in there. Um, and then they docked. Stop. <laughs> you know what docking is? No, stop it. Oh, uh, then on November 21st, 1969, Ken Griffey Jr. was born. That was a Friday. And then Saturday, November 22nd, 1969, Michigan ended Ohio State's 22-game college football winning streak with a 24-12 upset at Ann Arbor. With the defeat, the number one-ranked Ohio State Buckeyes, who held the unofficial 1968 college football championship, dropped from first place to number four. Why are we talking about college football? Because Michigan is better than Ohio State. Oh, stop. Go blue. Go blue. Knock it Jim off. Harbaugh. All right. And then on uh, Tuesday, November 25th, 1969, John Lennon returned his M- MBE medal to protest the British government's involvement in the Nigerian Civil War. Mm. Did you know that happened? Nope. I didn't know anything about that. Uh, I'm not surprised. Kind of su- how he rolled in those days. Yeah. I wish John Lennon was still alive. Yeah. But don't you think if he was still alive, like he wouldn't be as revered? I don't he know. Pro- he probably would have made a bunch of shitty albums like Paul McCartney. Yeah, he might have. He was such a he was such an agent of change though, much more so than Cartney. Yeah, I mean, McCartney. He, yeah, he was such an activist. Yeah. I guy, I yeah. he I think the world would be a better place if he hadn't died. Yeah, he really was smart and cool, but but like recently I was listening to some his last album of 1980, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, bad. And, yeah, like that watching the wheels go around mm-hmm. song like it sounds just like woman. Like, they sound mm-hmm. the same song. Yeah. I'm not impressed. Oh, well. November 29th, 1969, uh, the Beatles, speaking of the Beatles, come together, mm-hmm. slash something, takes over the number one spot of the Billboard chart. Yep. Come Together was inspired by a request from Timothy Leary to write a song for his campaign for governor of California against Ronald Reagan. Really? Yeah, which promptly ended when Leary was sent to prison mm-hmm. for possession of marijuana. That's right. Uh, the th- uh, John Lennon said, The thing was created in the studio. It's gobbledygook. Come Together was an expression that Leary had come up with for his attempt at being president or whatever he wanted to be, and he asked me to write a campaign song. I tried and tried, but I couldn't come up with one. But I came up with this, Come Together, which would have been no good to him. You couldn't have a campaign song like that, right? I know, because it just Random talks gibberish. It has no, yeah. Uh, uh, George Harrison said that he wrote two lines of the song, mm-hmm. uh, but that Lennon did the rest. And I guess Paul McCartney was frustrated that Lennon did all the vocals himself. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Recording engineer Jeff Emmerich said that Paul McCartney said, what do you want me to do on this track, John? And Lennon replied, don't worry, I'll do the overdubs on this. And it was kind of like signifying the end. It's oh. like they weren't communicating and they were frustrated with each other. Um, and Paul said, even on Abbey Road, we didn't do harmonies like we used to. I think it's sad. And come together, I would have liked to sing harmony with John. I think he would have liked me to, but I was too embarrassed to ask him. And I, I don't work with the best of my abilities in that situation. Mm. And Come Together also was a, a subject of copyright infringement, a claim brought against Lennon by Big Seven Music, who was the publisher of Chuck Berry's You Can't Catch Me. Oh. Chuck Berry, who needs to get out of here. Yeah. Uh, because um, the Here Come Old Flat Top, mm-hmm. moving up slowly, that's a lyric from... Uh, oh, it is. Yeah. So, boom. And now you know. Now you know. And now we're in December of 1969. Mm-hmm. 
69, dude. All right. All right. Well, first, we're going to go back to August 30th, 1948. Oh, a Monday. The same day that Louis Black was born? Comedian, actor, and author? No. Yeah. Really? Louis Black was born then. He's that old? Yeah. He's an old man. Wow. Um, Fred Hampton was born in Summit, Illinois. Well, Fred Hampton was born the same day that registration began for the second U.S. peacetime draft with 25-year-old men, the first to be enrolled. Yep. And he grew up in neighboring Maywood, but both they were both suburbs of Chicago. Okay. As a young man, Hampton was gifted both in the classroom and athletically and dreamed of playing center field for the New York Yankees. He graduated from Proviso East High School with honors in 1966 and enrolled at Triton Junior College in nearby River Grove, Illinois, where he majored in pre-law. Wow. He planned to become more familiar with the legal system to use it as a defense against police. Oh. Oh, I assume he's an African-American man then. He became involved with the NAACP and assumed a leadership role. Okay. He began to demonstrate natural leadership abilities. From a community of 27,000, he was able to muster a youth group 500 members strong. Wow. He he worked to get more and better recreational facilities established in the neighborhoods. That's good. And improve educational resources for Maywood's impoverished black community. Wow. Through his involvement with the NAACP, Hampton hoped to achieve social change through community organizing and nonviolent activism. Yes. That's the way to go. We need more of him. Around that same time, the Black Panther Party was beginning to be established. Okay. Hampton was quickly attracted to the Black Panther's approach, which was based on a 10-point program that integrated black self-determination with class and economic critique from Maoism. Hampton joined the party and relocated to downtown Chicago. In November 1968, he joined the Panthers' Illinois chapter. And then over the next year, Hampton and his friend and associates made a number of significant achievements while they were in Chicago. Okay. Perhaps his most important was his brokering of a non-aggression pact among Chicago's most powerful street gangs. Wow. Emphasizing that racial and ethnic conflict among gangs would only keep its members entrenched in poverty, Hampton strove to forge a class-conscious, multiracial alliance among the Black Panther Party, the Neo-Confederate Young Patriots Organization, and the Young Lords oh, okay. under the leadership of Jose Chacha Jimenez. I don't know, J I M. Yeah, I think it's sometimes Jimenez, but I knew a guy named Mike Jimenez. We call him Jimenez, and it was spelled that same way. So it's probably just depending on the family or whatever. Okay. And so they all, all those gangs and organizations all banded together. That's good. And became the Rainbow Coalition. Oh, the Rainbow Coalition, yeah. Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Coalition. that's right. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that. And so that was, they were leftist thinkers and activists. Yes, we need that again. So Hampton quickly rose in ranks in the Black Panther Party, too. okay. Based, because he had organizing skills, substantial oratorical gifts and personal charisma. Oratorical gifts, y'all. I mean, he's like 20 years old at this point. Wow. Okay. Once he became leader of the Chicago chapter, he organized weekly rallies, worked closely with the Black Panthers local people's clinic, taught political education classes every morning at 6 a.m., and launched a project for community supervision of the police. I love this guy. He was also instrumental in the Black Panthers free breakfast program, which was the big thing that they were known for, is the free breakfast program. As the nationwide Panther leadership began to be disseminated by the effects of FBI's COINTELPRO, do you know what that is? Quintelpro, no. uh-uh. counterintelligence program. Oh, the FBI had they were just 
such subversive. They would try to get into all the counterculture movements and um, and like destroy it destroy from it the from the inside. Wow. Yeah, Cointel Pro, and so the Ugh. the leadership of the Black Panthers started to struggle because Cointel Pro was actively trying, trying to, to break them up, up and everything. Yeah. Hampton's prominence in the national hierarchy increased rapidly and dramatically because of that, though. So he shot way up in okay. the Black Panthers. Eventually, he was in line to be appointed to the party's Central Com- Committee's chief of staff. He would have achieved that position had he not been killed on December fourth, nineteen sixty-nine. Oh no! I thought you were gonna. I thought you were getting into like he was. He snapped or something and murdered a bunch of people. No, so, but he got murdered. Yep. Well, I'm, yeah, I guess somebody like that doesn't. That's not your typical person who goes nuts and kills people. No. Like, it's usually somebody who's abused and had a weird family and weird Right. Life. This guy was murdered by... So... Oh, H- no. Hampton's effective leadership and his talent for communication marked him as a major threat to the FBI. To the FBI, yeah. They killed him, didn't they? Just like they did JFK. And it began... Ke- the FBI began keeping close tabs on his activities. Investigations have shown that FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover... Yes. was determined to prevent the formation of a cohesive black movement in the United oh, States. Man. Hoover believed Bullshit. that he believed that the Panthers, young patriots, young lords and similar radical coalitions Hampton forged in Chicago were a stepping stone to the rise of a revolution that could threaten the US government and society. No, no, they, all they want is equal. I know. They don't want to take over. The FBI opened Nobody a file to- on Hampton in 1967. It tapped Hampton's mother's phone in February 1968 oh. and by May placed Hampton on the Bureau's Agitator Index as uh, a key militant leader. That's shitty, man. Mm-hmm. In late 1968, the FBI got a car thief named William O'Neill to infiltrate the Panthers in exchange for dropped charges. Really? O'Neill joined the Panthers and quickly rose in the organization, becoming director of chapter security and Hampton's bodyguard. You wonder if, like, in the movies and stuff, was there ever a point where he was, like having regrets and like mm-hmm. oh, starting to like like them and, and wished he hadn't done this but he mm-hmm. already is in too deep because yeah. he's in because of the police and you like, would think in 1969 an fbi agent investigating told hoover that the panthers were primarily handing out breakfast to children hoover replied that the agent's job prospects depended on him finding evidence that the panther party was a violence prone organization seeking to overthrow the government by revolutionary means herbert hoover is a piece of shit mm-hmm. like he was a shitty president no, this is a J. Edgar Hoover, honey. Oh, that's right. He's the FBI. Well, they're related. <laughs> no. Anyway. All right. Anyway, I don't know why I said Herbert Hoover, but Herbert Hoover, I was thinking about it. Like, that guy sucked as a president. But this was different. This, this is J. Edgar Hoover. This is 1969. So. Yeah, he's a jerk, too. Yeah. Yeah, big, Herbert Hoover was way big time. that. So, um, because Fred Hampton was, he he would have made a huge difference. Like, he, Didn't J. Edgar he Hoover was, do a bunch of stuff with JFK? Like, he was yeah. involved with that whole oh, thing, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Sorry. Okay. Go but I was, as I was saying... Sorry. <laughs> Jesus. It's like talking to An idiot. somebody with severe ADD that's not on medication. I love you. Oh, wait. That's what it is. That's why it's hey. like that. So, anyway, um, he um, had this amazing oratorical gift. Yes. And he was such a motivator. And he was already, he was 21 years old, and he's like leading the Black Panthers. Yeah. He would have. Ma- he could have made. He could have been amazing. Oh could my have been god! Barack Obama back then. He could have changed. You know, like yeah. brought about change. And, but that's the thing. We're set up to but not they, let people like that succeed. But they like couldn't see it happen. You yeah. know, they knew that that they they knew that they didn't want anybody else to be equal to them. So they 
had to make sure to kick them down. Well, I think that I think it's a fear. Of, I would I say I think I've probably said this before. Like I think it's that white guilt and that white fear is that white people in power know that if the roles were reversed, they would want revenge. Yeah, and they would want to murder all, everyone that yeah. had power over them. Black people don't feel like that. Right. That's why they're superior. That's why I think they're superior because yeah. they just want equal. They don't want revenge. Right. But white people can't understand that. Yeah. White people would think, well, if it was me, I yeah, would want I revenge. Would, I would want revenge and I always want revenge because they're mm-hmm. just, they, that's how they think. Yeah. Which I think is why <laughs> black people are better than white people. Yeah. So anyway. Sorry, no offense. By means of an anonymous letters, the FBI sowed distrust and eventually instigated a split between the Panthers and the Rangers, which was another one of the people in the another, coalition. Yeah. O'ne- coalition. O'Neill, the guy that's the snitch. Yeah. yeah. Personally instigated an armed <laughs> clash. A snitch. I guess he is a snitch. He, he did what? He personally instigated an armed clash between them on April 2nd, 1969. Yeah. The Panthers became effectively isolated from their power base in the Chicago ghetto, so the FBI worked to undermine its ties with other radical organizations. O'Neill was instructed to create a rift between the party and Students for a Democratic Society, whose Chicago headquarters was blocks from the Panthers. Uh, the Bureau released a batch of racist cartoons in the Panthers' name aim, aimed at alienating white activists. Um, it also launched a disinformation program to forestall formation of the Rainbow Coalition, but the Panthers still made an alliance with the Young Patriots and Young Lords. Good. In repeated directives, Hoover demanded that Cointelpro personnel investigate the Rainbow Coalition, destroy what the Panthers stand for, and eradicate its Serve the People programs. Those Serve the People programs were like the yeah. breakfast yeah, and the stuff. Breakfast, yeah. What terrible, terrible... Documents... Office. Documents Senate investigators secured in the early 1970s revealed that the FBI actively encouraged violence between the Panthers and other radical groups. This provoked multiple murders in the cities throughout the country. On July 16, 1969, an armed confrontation between party members and the Chicago Police Department resulted in one Black Panther member mortally wounded and six others arrested on serious charges. Wait, you mean that happened July 16, 1969? The same... Night that Wink to Me Only was on. I don't even know what you're saying. And Craft Music Hall presents Sandler and Young. Yes. That same night. All right. Wink to Me Only was a sitcom about a married couple who are God damn each it. other's polar opposite. In early October, Hampton and his girlfriend Deborah Johnson, who was nine months pregnant with their first child, rented a four and a half room apartment at 2337 West Monroe Street to be closer to the Black Panther headquarters. O'Neill reported to his superiors that much of the Panthers' provocative stockpile of arms was stored there. And then they he drew a map of the apartment. Yeah. In early November, Hampton traveled to California on a speaking engagement to the UCLA Law Students Association. While there, he met with the remaining Black Panther national hierarchy who appointed him to the party's central committee. He was soon to take the position of chief of staff and major spokesman. While Hampton was out of town... Two Chicago police officers, John G. Gilhuey and Frank G. Rappaport. Gil Gilhuey, mm-hmm. Gil, not Gilhuey. Gilhuey, Gilhuey, Gilhuey. It's funny looking. Was they were fatally shot in a gun battle with the Panthers on the night of November thirteenth. Oh. One died the next the next day. Wow. A total of nine police officers were shot. Yikes. 19-year-old Panther Spurgeon Winter Jr. was killed by police, and another Panther, Lawrence S. Bell, was charged with the murder. 
In an unsigned editorial headlined, No Quarter for Wild Beasts, the Chicago Tribune urged the Chicago police officers approaching suspected panthers should be ordered to be ready to shoot. Man. The newspaper said that. Yeah. The FBI, determined to prevent any enhancement of the Black Panther leadership's effectiveness, decided to set up an arms raid on Hampton's Chicago apartment. O'Neill provided them with detailed information about Hampton's apartment, including the layout of the furniture and the bed in which Hampton and his girlfriend slept. Man, fuck this O'Neill guy. An augmented 14-man team of the SAO was organized for a pre-dawn raid. They were armed with a search warrant for illegal weapons. On the evening of December 3rd, Hampton taught a political education course at a local church, which was attended by most members. Afterward, as was typical, several Panthers went to his Monroe Street apartment to spend the night, including Hampton and Deborah Johnson. Blair Anderson, James Grady, Ronald Doc Satchel, Harold Bell, Verlina Brewer, Louis Trulock, Brenda Harris, and Mark Clark. There, they were met by O'Neill, who had prepared a late dinner, which the group ate at around midnight. O'Neill had slipped the bar- slipped a barbiturate sleep agent, Secobarbital, into a drink that Hampton consumed during the dinner uh. in order to sedate Hampton so he would not awaken during the subsequent raid. O'Neill left at this point, and about 1.30 a.m. December 4th, Hampton fell asleep mid-sentence talking to his mother on the phone. The raid was organized by state's attorney Edward Hanrahan. Hanrahan had recently been strongly criticized by Hampton, who said that Hanrahan's talk about the war on gangs was really rhetoric used to enable him to carry out a war on black youth. Hanrahan's a dick. At 4 o'clock a.m., the heavily armed police team arrived at the site, divided into two teams, eight for the front of the building and six for the rear. At 4.45 a.m., they stormed into the apartment. Mark Clark, sitting in the front room of the apartment with a shotgun on his lap, was on security duty. The police shot him in the chest, killing him instantly. An alternative account said that Clark answered the door and police immediately shot him. Either way, Clark's gun discharged once into the ceiling. The single round was fired when he suffered a reflexive death convulsion after being shot. This was the only shot fired by the Panthers. Yep, of course. Hampton, drugged by the barbiturates, was sleeping on a mattress in the bedroom with his fiancée. And she was forcibly removed from the room by the police officers while Hampton still lay unconscious in bed. Then the raiding team fired at the head of the south bedroom. Hampton was wounded in the shoulder by the shooting. Fellow Black Panther Harold Bell said that he heard the following exchange. That's Fred Hampton. Is he dead? Bring him out. He's barely alive. He'll make it. The injured Panthers said they heard two shots. According to Hampton's supporters, the shots were fired point blank at Hampton's head. Yep. According to Deborah Johnson, the off- an officer said, he's good and dead now. So this is terrible. This is a murder. His body was dragged into the doorway of the bedroom and left in a pool of blood. The officers directed their gunfire at the remaining Panthers who had been sleeping in the north bedroom. Berlina Brewer, Ronald Doc Satchel, Blair Anderson, and Brenda Harris were seriously wounded, then beaten and dragged into the street. They were arrested on charges of aggravated assault and the attempted murder of the officers. They were each held on $100,000 bail. Jeez. For uh, aggravated assault. For, yeah, for nothing. This was a no-knock warrant. Yeah, you go in there and do that for... Mm-hmm. Now, don't be doing other no, things, I'm, please. I'm trying to look up... No, keep going. I'm listening. The seven Panthers who survived the raid were indicted by a grand jury on charges of attempted murder, armed violence, and various other weapons charges. These charges were subsequently dropped. 
During the trial, the Chicago Police Department claimed that the Panthers were the first to fire the shots. But a later investigation found that the Chicago Police fired between 90 and 99 shots, while the only Panther shot was a bullet that hit the ceiling from Mark Clark's fallen shotgun. After a break in an FBI after a break in at an FBI office in Pennsylvania, the existence of CoinTelPro, which was the illegal yeah. counterintelligence yeah. program, was revealed and reported. With this program revealed, many activists and others began to suspect that the police raids and the shooting of Fred Hampton were conducted under this program. One of the documents released after the break in was a floor plan of Hampton's apartment. Another document outlined, outlined a deal that the FBI brokered with the U.S. Department Attorney General to conceal the FBI's role in the killing of Hampton and the existence of CoinTelPro. At a press conference the next day, the police announced the arrest team had been attacked by the violent and extremely vicious Panthers and yeah, had defended ridiculous. themselves accordingly. In a second press conference on December 8th, the police leadership praised the assault team for their remarkable restraint, bravery, and professional discipline in not killing all the Panthers present. Bullshit. Photographic evidence was presented of the bullet holes allegedly made by shots fired by the Panthers, but this was soon challenged by reporters. An internal investigation was undertaken, and the police claimed that their colleagues and friends on the assault team were exonerated of any wrongdoing. But then they examined the pictures, and it wasn't bullet holes. It They were like nails. The police had come in and like put nails in the wall. To look like bullet yes. holes? Yep. Idiots. Um, Hampton's funeral was attended by 5,000 mourners, and Jesse Jackson spoke, among others. On December 6th, the Weather Underground destroyed numerous police cars in retaliation. Yeah. Do you know who the Weather yeah, Underground yeah, was? Yeah, we talked about them. Yeah. I think I cut it out, but we were, had a whole thing about them last episode. The police went to the papers and doctored evidence to supposedly show all the bullet holes. I already told you about the bullet holes. Um yeah, the Weather Underground, I think I cut it out of last episode, but they had, like, destroyed uh, a monument, like a police monument in Chicago. Mm. It was kind of part of all this whole thing. Jack Chellum, editor of the Wright College News, had visited the apartment that this all happened in on Saturday, December 6th, as it was unsecured. He took numerous photographs of the crime scenes. These photographs did not show the bullet holes, as reported by the Chicago, the Chicago Tribune. On the morning of December 12th, after the Chicago Tribune article had appeared with the Hanrahan-supplied photos, Chalum contacted a reporter at the Chicago Sun-Times, showing him his own photos that don't show the bullet holes, and encouraged the other reporter to visit the apartment. That evening, the Chicago Sun-Times published a page one article with the headline, Those Bullet Holes Aren't. According to the article, the alleged bullet holes, supposedly the result of the Panthers shooting in the direction of the police, were nail heads. A federal grand jury did not return any indictment against any of the numerous individuals involved with the planning or execution of the raid, including the officers involved in killing Hampton, even though they killed him, shot him in the head. FBI informant William O'Neill, who had given the FBI the floor plan of the apartment and drugged Hampton, later admitted his involvement in setting up the raid. He committed suicide on January 25th, 1990. Yeah, I bet he did. The jury convened for the inquest. This is the guilt he must have had Mm -hmm. all this time, yeah. The jury convened for the inquest on January 6, 1970. On January 21st, they ruled the deaths of Hampton and Clark to be justifiable homicides. January 6, 1970, the same night that the governor and J.J. was on CBS. That's just a show that focuses on the relationship between a widowed state governor and his hip daughter, J.J. 
On this episode, an old college friend of Governor Drinkwater comes for a visit, and the governor is looking forward to it. But the man is now a South American dictator, and that doesn't sit well with J.J. <laughs> the jury qualified their verdict on the death of Hampton as based solely and exclusively on the evidence presented to this inquisition. Police and expert witnesses provided the only testimony during the inquest. Yeah. Jury foreman James T. Hicks stated that they could not consider the charges made by surviving Black Panthers who had been in the apartment. They had told reporters that the police entered the apartment shooting. The survivors were reported to have refused to testify during the inquest because they faced criminal charges of attempted murder and aggravated assault during the raid. Attorneys for the Hampton and Clark families did not introduce any witnesses during the proceedings, but described the inquest as a well-rehearsed theatrical performance designed to vindicate the police officers. State's attorney, Edward Hanrahan, said the verdict was recognition of the truthfulness of our police officers' accounts of the events. Bullshit. Bullshit. In 1982, the city of Chicago, Cook County, and the federal government agreed to a settlement in which each would pay $606,333 to a group of nine plaintiffs, including the mothers of Hampton and Clark. That's it. In 1990, the Chicago City Council unanimously passed a resolution introduced by then-Alderman Madeline Haithcock commemorating December 4th, 2004 as Fred Hampton Day in Chicago. The resolution read in part, Fred Hampton, who was only 21 years old, made his mark in Chicago history not so much by his death as by the heroic efforts of his life and by his goals of empowering the most oppressed sector of Chicago's black community, bringing people into political life through participation into their own freedom-fighting organization. You know what else? You know what was happening in Brooklyn that day that he was shot? What? Sean Corey Carter was born. Jay Z. Jay Z was born on that day. I know. I just ended my story with a nice little button, and then you have to come in with that's ridiculousness. Jay Z is a great rapper. Like he's, it's a historic day that he was born on. That's significant. Oh, that was sad and tragic and awful. But I guess that's the 60s and the civil rights movement. It still goes on today. I know. It's like nothing's different. Made so much progress. And it's just there's just something wrong with white people. There is. It's crazy. Not all white people, but a significant amount. Mm -hmm. There's something wrong with people that act like that. that Think that way. Yeah. Think like that. There's something wrong. It's a mental illness. Well, it's. It's like like we've said before, we have been brought up, it, we've been educated in the United States. If you're white and educated in the United States, you are a racist. You have... Yeah, you're, you're taught to be that way. Taught yes. everything that you're taught. And then you're taught to... And you have to have unlearn pr- all that. Yeah, have pride and uh, patriotism, and this is the greatest country in the world. Right, you've got to unlearn that. all that. Yeah, it's, it's hard. hard. Yeah. And that black people are bad, or that the the black neighborhood is the bad neighborhood. Yeah, right. Like, you're taught, that's what you're told, and that's what you just think, that, well, that's the truth. Yeah. And then you grow up, and you're like, wait a minute, that's, that's a lie. Well, it's hard for you to realize that people you respect or love are wrong. You know, it's hard right. to face that. Well, they're, li- they're lied to, too. Yeah. Like, I talk, think about that. Yeah. You know, I, I sometimes I talk to older people, and they... They still believe They still things. don't yeah. get it, and yeah. it's like... I, they never, but they, some of them never will. They've been taught that, too. It's just... Well, let's finish up December on that yep. horrible note. On that horrible note. Uh, December 6th, 1969 was a Saturday. The Altamont Free Concert was held at the Altamont Speedway near Tracy, California, and drew 300,000 people, hosted by the Rolling Stones. It was an attempt at, a, at Woodstock West. 
and was better known for the four deaths that happened during the day, including the beating and stabbing to death of one of the spectators, Meredith Hunter, by the Hells Angels Motorcycle Group, hired as, a, as security guards. Mm-hmm. Mark Seiger and Richard Salloy died. God, that was another thing that I could have did, when done. A, yeah, when a car ran off the highway and plowed into them while they sat around a campfire. Another man, identified almost two weeks later as Leonard Kryzak of New York, climbed over a fence and drowned in one of the canals of the California aqueduct. Jesus. Isn't that crazy? Yep. Altamont. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then that same day, na-na-na-na, hey, 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 kiss him goodbye, mm-hmm. uh, became the number one song on the Billboard charts. All right. That's a song written and recorded by Paul Lika. Uh Gary DiCarlo and Dale Frashower mm-hmm. attributed to a then fictitious band they named Steam. It was released under the Mercury subsidiary subsidiary label Fontana and became a number one pop single on the Billboard Hit 100 in late 69 and remained there until 70. Uh, and then fast forward in 1977, Chicago White Sox organist Nancy Faust began playing the song mm-hmm. and is generally directed at the losing side in an elimination contest when the outcome is all but certain. Oh, that's na, funny. Na, na, she started na. that? Na, 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 na. Hey, right. hey, hey, hey. Good. Yeah, she started playing that at a White Sox game to talk shit. Um, that's funny. Yep. And Gary, who wrote the song, said that everything was na-na when you didn't have a lyric. Uh, and he added the hey, hey when they were just playing the music and they were just trying to make up like na, 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 hey, hey. And then they just kept it. Uh, and then Sunday, December 7th, 1969, the animated Rankin Bass Christmas special. Rankin Bass. I don't know what you're talking about. Rankin Bass Christmas special. Frosty the Snowman. Oh, yes. Is it Rankin Bass or I Bass? don't know. I've never Bass. paid attention to that. I don't know what that is. Uh, I do love that one, though. Adapted from the song of the same name was shown on television for the first time, shown at 730 in the evening on CBS. I used to love that one when I was little. It was, uh, yeah. Patrice O'Neill was born that same day. And then fast forward to Sunday, December 14th, 1969. The murder of Diane Maxwell took place when the 25-year-old phone operator was found sexually assaulted and killed. Oh. The case would remain unsolved until 2003. I thought you were going to do that one. Oh, no, I didn't do that one. Uh, and that same day, during halftime show, a uh, halftime show at an NFL football game between the Vikings and 49ers in Minneapolis, a large hot air balloon broke its moorings and carried its passenger, an 11-year-old boy, out of Metropolitan Stadium in Bloomington and traveled three miles before landing in, Mi- in the Minnesota River. Oh, my God. The boy, Rick Snyder, was able to swim to shore and return to see the end of the game. Whoa, that was an adventure. In December in Minnesota. Oh, my God. And that's... Yeah. And then Monday, December 15, 1969, U.S. President Nixon announced that he would bring an additional 50,000 American troops out of the Vietnam War over the next four months, making the withdrawal of over 110,000 U.S. servicemen during the first year of his administration. Okay. And then on Wednesday, mm-hmm. December 17, 1969, the first widely publicized warning of climate change caused by pollution was delivered by physical scientist Joseph O. Fletcher. Of the Rand Corporation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fletcher told us... He was ahead of his time. Yeah, he told the assembled scientists that very substantial changes have taken place during our lifetime. Uh, isn't that crazy? Yes. That, I didn't know it was that early. 
Um, that's gross. Yeah, it's awful. It's so congested. Uh, that same day, in a record for an American late night television show, at least 30 million people tuned in to watch the wedding of falsetto voice singer Herbert Buckingham Carey, better known by his stage name, Tiny Tim, on The Tonight Show, hosted by Johnny Carson. Oh. Tiny Tim's 17 year old bride, Victoria May Budinger, was quickly nicknamed Miss Vicky by the American press. Yep. That's a weird. Yeah. Tiny that Tim. That fucking weird guy weird. married a 17 year old child yep. and everybody loved it? I know. That's weird. Uh, and he had that tiptoe. Yeah. That's the only song I know. Uh, he, he walked to the altar through 10,000 tulips imported from the Netherlands. It's the only thing he was famous for. Yep. And then on December 20th, 1969, a Saturday, mm-hmm. Peter, Paul, and Mary leaving on a jet plane takes Aww. over the number one spot. I love that one. Leaving on a jet plane. Don't know when the fuck will be back again. You're going to ruin it. That's how it goes. And then on Christmas Day of 1969, Wizard Toy... Wizard. The Wizard toy was introduced along with the Big Wheel Tricycle. Oh. I don't know what a Wizard toy is. Do you? No, I don't. Other popular toys that Christmas were uh, Upsy Downsies, Silly String, Astrolite, Toss Across, Big Wheel, or the Big Wheel, Nerf, and Nerf Balls. Toss Across is a fun game. Is it, though? When you toss the bean bags, it's like cornhole, but the early version. You toss a little tic-tac-toe board. I just threw ours away. Darn it. We had a pool one. That was Yeah, that's that was, what I just threw away because nobody ever once played with it. Well, we need to force the kids to play no, with things. they won't play with it. And then on December 27th, 1969, Diana Ross and the Supremes take over the number one spot with Someday We'll Be Together. Yes. It's a good one. So, uh, Sunday, December 28th, 1969 in New York. The Young Lords, a Puerto Rican militant group, took over the first Spanish Methodist church at 111th Street and Lexington Avenue in East Harlem and then used it for the next 11 days to make positive contributions to the Hispanic community in the city. They were part of the Rainbow Coalition. Tem- yeah, temporarily renaming the building the People's Church. The Young Lords provided a clinic, a daycare center, breakfast, evening entertainment, and classes at no charge until space could be secured for a Young Lords Center in the Bronx. The group surrendered surrendered peacefully on January 7th uh, the next year. The takeover brought publicity to the needs of Puerto Ricans who had moved to or who had been born in the mainland U.S. Uh, yes. And these people all get bad raps. And then Monday, December 29th, 1969, the Dick Cavett Show, the ABC's television network's second attempt at a late-night talk show to compete against Johnny Carson, premiered at 11.30 Eastern Time, replacing the Joey Bishop Show. And that brings us to the end of 1969. We always oh. end. We end every season on Dick Cavett. <laughs> we should. I don't think we can. I like to. He wasn't around for that long. I like to end every load of blow on Dick Cavett's rear end. All right. We don't need to. Well, like, you, like you've never snorted blow off of Dick Cavett's ass. Thanks for coming on this journey of years and years of the 60s with us, everybody. Yes. Thanks for listening to season four. We just thought... I mean, the 60s was the whole reason we started this podcast. We mm-hmm. couldn't wait to get to the 60s. I think the 70s was for me. 70s and 60s. But we knew it would be murder-filled. Yes. So 
It was before think, we had surveillance everywhere. Yeah. It's before we had electronic trailing, uh, uh, and it was before we had helmets yeah. to protect you from concussions that make you grow up and become a serial killer. That's so right. things were way different, mm-hmm. and it was crazy. There's a lot of murder, a lot of true crime. But that said, our next season will be in the fifties, and it'll be different, and there won't be as much. No, there won't be craziness, as much. I think. I think it'll change. Won't be a as much bit. info. Yeah, so maybe we'll change it a little bit, and we won't focus on so many murders and rapes. Oh, come on, though. I mean, maybe we will, but maybe we'll maybe find we'll more. just do only murder. Let's just do that. We'll just do this year in murder and rape, and we'll just do only murders and rapes for and every not year. Not talk about anything else. And nothing else. Not even anything. But there's so many good things <laughs> that happen. Like uh, I'm just trying bank to, robbers. Just trying to, you know. I was thinking the opposite. Maybe we just drop the murders and rapes. Then what am I going to do? Bank robbers. That's crime. Mm. Why is that not as exciting? I don't know. Yeah, see? Hey, put the money in a bag. No, Come on, see? Terrible. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, Time Heads. Thanks for officially calling yourselves Time Heads. Nobody does. Reach out to us on Twitter at History for Jerks. Let us know what you want to see in the 50s. Yeah, the how do you want us to fix it? Yeah, let us know what you want to change or if you want it the same. Do you want us to have guests? And if we have guests, what are they going to do? <laughs> <laughs> do we just tell them everything? Just have a guest there and just make them listen to us? Yeah, that's dumb. Yeah. I don't know. We're figuring it out. But we're going to take a couple weeks off, I think. Even though we've been taking a bunch of weeks off. But we got to figure out. We're going to regroup. We're going to do more research. Yes. I'm going to try well, harder we'll next see. season. We'll see. There might be a bi-weekly podcast. Yes. That would or be try weekly. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening, Time Heads. Bye, we love Angel. you. Tweet us at History for Jerks. Give us your suggestions. We love you. All right. We peace. want to kiss you. Bobby Field is going through all types of physical and mental torture. But that's all right. Because we said even before this happened. And we're going to say it after this. Not that I'm locked up. Not that everybody's locked up. That you can jail a revolutionary, but you can't jail a revolution. Right. You might run a liberator like Eric Cleave out the country, but you can't run liberation out the country. You might murder a freedom fighter like Bobby Hutton, but you can't murder freedom fighting. And if you do, you come up with answers that don't answer explanations that don't explain. You come up with conclusions that don't conclude. And you come up with people that you thought should be acting like pigs, just acting like people and moving on pigs. And that's what we've got to do. So we're going to see about Bobby, regardless of what these people think we should do. Because school is not important, and work is not important. Nothing's more important than stopping fascism, because fascism will stop us all. American Time We're so tired of hearing about the six days. I said we're so tired of hearing about the six days When you were all alone, no watchtower, a kiss in the sky Well, I was barely a glimmer in my young daddy's eyes I said that we're so tired of hearing about the six days One more time, I said we're so tired of hearing about Well, make me shut my mouth now. I'm in Baskin Paris versus Delphi Town. I'm in Stanley Cope and 
Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Thank you. Love you. Dave won pork.